0: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and that Tina Fey character that just won't go away. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today you've got me, Shayna Roth, senior producer at Slate and producer of The Waves.
1: And me, I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward.
0: Sarah Palin burst into many of our lives when then-Republican candidate for President John McCain announced that this governor from Alaska was going to be his running mate for the 2008 presidential election. That's the year he lost to the senator from Illinois, Barack Obama.
2: She's not she's not from these parts, and she's not from Washington. But when you get to know her, you're going to be as impressed as I am. She's got the grit, integrity, good sense, and fierce devotion to the common good that is exactly what we need in Washington today.
0: For me, because I was in college and not really yet paying attention to politics at this point, the first time I even heard of Sarah Palin was as a character on Saturday Night Live. And because I was of a certain age, I'm pretty sure I saw it on YouTube.
2: Governor Palin, would you like to respond to Senator Biden's comments about John McCain? No, thank you. But I would like to talk about being an outsider. <laughs> you see, while Senator Biden has been in Washington all these years, I've been with regular people, hockey moms and Joe Six Packs. And I'd also like to give a shout out to the third graders of Gladys Woods Elementary, who were so helpful to me in my debate prep.
0: But she was always a joke to me, this- This sort of mild threat, because at the time, I honestly just thought of her as dumb and incompetent person that I really did not want to be the backup president to an elderly man. But I really thought after the election, she would just go away and I'd forget all about her. But that is clearly not the case. Christina, what is your first memory of Sarah Palin?
1: I, too, was in college, but I was highly politically aware. Um, I came into my political consciousness in high school, you know, during George W. Bush's presidency, sort of radicalized by the war, very much into abortion rights and other uh, progressive causes. So then in college, when Obama was up for election, and uh, Sarah Palin was announced as the vice presidential candidate, I just remember thinking, wow, I feel like my parents and a couple other people who are more on the moderate to conservative side had always talked about John McCain as this like really reasonable and smart and sort of like maverick Republican candidate. Yet here he is choosing Sarah Palin as his running mate who uh, doesn't seem qualified to be president, uh, doesn't seem qualified to be governor of Alaska, much less president. But unlike you, I didn't necessarily think she would go away. She seemed a little bit scarier to me at the time because I saw people, mostly Republicans, almost excited by the things that scared a lot of the rest of us, like her very proud ignorance of a lot of basic political issues, um, her disdain for the media, things that uh, maybe naively I would have thought would have been disqualifying, or at least a turnoff to voters actually seemed to be the things that were exciting them. Clearly, this was a precursor to the candidacy and popularity of Donald Trump. And that's one of the major reasons why Sarah Palin Became a little bit of a kingmaker in the years after her vice presidential candidacy and now is a little bit less relevant in politics, but is staging a pretty credible comeback in Alaska politics.
0: Christina went on a trip to Palin's home state of Alaska to find out what the state thinks of Palin and a whole lot more. And we're going to talk about all of it. Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show, and we really hope you are, and you want to hear more, please subscribe to our feed. We have new episodes for you every Thursday morning. And while you're there, check out our other episodes, too. Lately, we've had conversations about witches, why we hate the sounds of women's voices, and co-ed sports. Welcome back to the Waves. Christina, we're going to spend most of the show talking about the final installment in your Alaska series, brilliantly called The Republican Discontents of Alaska, or I tried all 17 chilies at an Alaska Republican cook off and all I got was an earful about Sarah Palin. Brilliant titles. But first, let's start out with why did you go to Alaska? There
1: are two big races going on there that are sort of unusually competitive and unpredictable and thus exciting and interesting this year. One is the moderate Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski is up for re election, and the state Republican Party has basically disowned her and is running a hardcore right wing rom- woman against her. The other big race, the one we're talking about here, is the congressional race. So, Alaska has only one seat in Congress. And it was held by this Republican, Don Young, who cut a very memorable figure in Congress uh, for almost 50 years. And in March, he died. He was 88. So, you know, it was unexpected in the sense that he wasn't like bedridden or anything. So all of a sudden, this congressional seat was open with no incumbent for the first time In a lot of Alaskans' lifetimes, and including in some of the lifetimes of the people who would end up running for that seat, all kinds of people said, you know, screw it, I'm going to run, because there wasn't someone favored to win and someone with a long and storied record to run against. So there's all kinds of factors at play in this race that I wanted to explore in Alaska. There's the influence of Trump. Um, internal conflicts within the Republican Party and within conservative circles. And then there's the particularities of Alaska politics that I didn't know much about until I spent some time up there, but now actually seem to me to be just as relevant, if not more so than a lot of the other sort of national dynamics at play.
0: Alaska's congressional race started actually this summer during a special election for the state's lone seat in Congress. So Congressman Don Young died before finishing his term. And then that election was the first time that the state used ranked choice voting, which is basically what it sounds like. You rank the candidates by preference. So if people in one party have a whole bunch of different candidates as their top choice, but they agree on a second or third choice, that can be factored into the result. It basically prevents someone very polarizing, but with a very loyal fan base from scooping up all of the votes. I'm sure that sounds familiar, given who we're talking about. Well, a Democrat won that special election. Mary Peltola is the first Alaska native to take the seat, and now she has to run again. And in the middle of all of this is Sarah Palin. And now that we have set the table, Christina, I can ask you the question that I have been dying to ask. Why does Alaska hate Sarah Palin?
1: <laughs> okay, so before any any Alaskan Sarah Palin fan who somehow listens to the waves <laughs> uh, comes at me with a pitchfork, a lot of people in Alaska really like Sarah Palin. But there are two populations who have come to dislike her over the years. There's the general voting population, and then there's the Republican Party. So these are, you know, Republican officials who make up a small but influential portion of Alaska voters. So let's start with the first one. Why would an average Alaskan might not like Sarah Palin? Well, first of all, there's a perception among many Alaskans that she abandoned Alaska. First, to run for vice president while she was governor. Um, So the chili cook-off that I visited when I was up there, anyone could go, but the club hosting it was a Republican women's club. They told me that... There used to be just one Republican women's club in this region of Alaska where Sarah Palin is from. Um, it's called the Matsu Valley. It's very conservative. Um, and it's just north of Anchorage. And when Sarah Palin decided to run for vice president, there was a split within that Republican women's group because some people said, great, we love that Sarah Palin is going to make a splash on the national stage. We support her run. And the others said, no, she should stay here. She's our governor. What is she doing trying to become a national celebrity when she has stuff to do here? Our state's going to suffer in the meantime. Then after Sarah Palin lost the vice presidency, she resigned in the middle of her term as governor. So she came back to Alaska, um, spent a few more months in office and then left. You know, she was under a lot of scrutiny for various ethical issues. um, But also she wanted to take advantage of this national momentum she had. So she became a conservative commentator. She, I'm sure you remember, although I hope for your sake that you don't, she hosted some reality shows. She started campaigning for other candidates. She basically left and made a ton of money and got really famous for not being in Alaska. And Alaska, like a lot of states that are small and scrappy and have a lot of pride and sort of feel like they've been given short shrift in a lot of ways, really resent people who leave and then try to come back and say, I'm one of you. So when I spoke to people in Alaska from all parties and all parts of the political spectrum, people were saying, well, she's she's not even from here anymore. She's not Alaska anymore. She doesn't live here. People mentioned that she was buying and selling houses in Arizona, which is true. She spent a lot of time out of the state. Some people said she. Uh, embarrassed Alaska, chasing headlines with these like ridiculous sound bites. Um, She also really leaned into the most extreme politics of the contemporary National Republican Party. So when you think about the guy she ran for vice president with, John McCain, and the guy she's now aligned with, Donald Trump, they're two very different parts of the Republican political spectrum. And Alaska is just not an extremist place. Its politics are very idiosyncratic, in part because it has a bit of a libertarian streak that you might expect from this place that's so far removed from everywhere else in the country with like extreme climates, very rural areas that's directly impacted by a lot of federal policies. It also gets a ton of federal aid. But let's also talk about the state Republican Party. And these are the people who are actually going out and campaigning for candidates and have a lot of influence in their local communities. They have noticed that she disengaged from state politics when she went out and tried to become more involved in the National Republican Party. She kind of badmouthed the state Republican Party at a certain point. She called them an old boys club, said they were corrupt. And at the chili cook-off, I talked to one official with the state party who said, yeah, it was like that 15 years ago. And you haven't been here, you know, in the past decade, we've been working to change that. Where were you? We could have used your help. And then the straw that broke the camel's back, um, more like a tire iron that broke the camel's back, was the way she came back into state politics. So when Don Young died in March, there was already another Republican in the race, this guy, Nick Begich. He had already announced when Don Young was alive that he was going to primary Young from the right. So he was very conservative. He had connections in the state party, but he was business minded and palatable enough to appeal to independence and... There are twice as many Republicans as Democrats in Alaska and twice as many independents as Republicans. So that independent vote is a major factor in any race. And uh, a lot of Republicans felt like Nick Begich could easily capture them, even though he was more conservative than the incumbent Republican. Then Don Young dies and Sarah Palin sees an opportunity and throws her hat back in the ring. All of a sudden, there's no clear Republican successor to him. So I'm omitting a couple of other Republicans who also shot their shot because they really didn't stand as much of a chance. Um, And it was really Palin that upended the dynamics of this race that the Republican Party thought should have been. Not an easy win, but uh, not as much of an upset as it ended up being. So Democrats and centrist independents coalesced around Mary Peltola and this independent candidate who ended up dropping out and endorsing Peltola. And Republicans and conservatives were split. The like MAGA Republicans for Palin, the establishments for Begich. And again, this is a little oversimplified because Alaska is... So unique, such that a lot of state Republican Party officials, you would definitely call them MAGA Republicans or right wing. They're big supporters of Trump. They're not moderate by any means. Um, You know, they're supporting a ban on abortion with absolutely no exceptions, but they are less enthralled to the cult of personality of Trump. Trump has endorsed Sarah Palin and they don't care. They're also more pragmatic about who can win this election and who's going to care about actually doing stuff in Congress, not just being a celebrity, um, because they are very, very aware that the only way this state with only one representative in Congress can exert influence is through seniority. So Don Young had the seat for 50 years. So he had a lot of power and a lot of influence in Congress. Alaska Republican officials I I believe, don't want to elect somebody who is going to have a hard time winning election year after year after year and isn't going to be like sort of head down focused on what they're doing in Congress. Palin doesn't seem like someone who could do or or would be willing to stay in Congress for a really long time and focus on the work.
0: We're going to take a break here, but when we get back, we're going to talk about the staying power of Sarah Palin. If you want to hear more from myself and Christina on another topic, you should definitely check out our plus segment. Today, we're going to talk about another one of Christina's articles. Please stop fawning over Sheryl Sandberg's dinky abortion rights donation. It was an absolute fire of a piece. And Christina, I have questions, so you won't want to miss that and please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one and that conversation between Christina and myself. It's only one dollar for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com/slash/thewavesplus.
3: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this: for the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform.
0: Christina, as I mentioned at the start of the show, Sarah Palin has been in our lives for a very long time. And throughout that time, she's represented a lot of not great things, in my opinion. She's very anti-abortion. She wants to, quote, drill baby drill. She was a huge driver of the Tea Party movement, which was very much a precursor to the sort of hyper-conservatism that has really almost taken over the Republican Party or much of the Republican Party. But then she kind of went away from politics for a while. And she seemed to be focusing on trying to be a celebrity more than a politician. I mean, she was even on The Masked Singer in 2020. (laughs) So now that she's trying to find another foothold in politics, why are we giving her oxygen? Do you think we should even be talking about her? Is this the sort of thing where this is one of those personalities where, like, we should just leave them alone and they will eventually go away and not be so dangerous?
1: I think we've seen that that's not how politics or talking about people works. Well, first of all, she's running for office. And uh, for a long time, she was leading the polls because she has fantastic name recognition. Um, So she still stands a shot at winning this seat, at which point she would have real political power in Congress. And so we definitely shouldn't ignore that. The other part of this is... How, however, this election turns out, Trumpism is not going away. And Sarah Palin is a celebrity in the MAGA community. She's certainly going to continue to play a role in the conservative social media and just media. And the things that appeal to people about Sarah Palin still appeal to them about other candidates, too. So... While this race has a lot of dynamics that are specific to Alaska, paying attention to this race and what happens to somebody like Sarah Palin in rank choice voting in a rank choice voting situation should be, in my opinion, a wake up call to Democrats and progressives and or people who favor democracy in other places Because it's pretty encouraging to see what can happen when voters more nuanced preferences are actually reflected and the way that this kind of a system can prevent sort of extremist polarizing candidates from winning, like squeaking by with a slight plurality of votes. Um, I think this is a very interesting and encouraging uh, almost experiment in ranked choice voting, which doesn't exist in that many places in the U.S. yet.
0: One of the things that really startled me when I was going down the Sarah Palin memory lane as I prepped for this episode was the Saturday Night Live sketches and just all the buzzwords and ideas that are still so much a part of our culture, like fake news, liberal media. I had forgotten that those terms had been around for that long. Uh, But the one sort of thing that really hit me was this sketch from Saturday Night Live with Sarah Palin and Hillary Clinton having a joint message together.
2: Now, I know it must be a little bit strange for all of you to see the two of us together, what with me being John McCain's running mate and me being a fervent supporter of Senator Barack Obama, (laughs) as evidenced by this button. (laughs)
0: Tina Fey is Sarah Palin, per usual, and Amy Poehler is, in my opinion, the best Hillary Clinton. And it's all about how sexism has played a role in the campaign and asking the media not to focus on them as women.
1: One thing we can agree on is that sexism can never be allowed to permeate an American
2: election. So please, stop photoshopping my head on sexy bikini pictures. And stop saying I have cankles. Don't refer to me as a MILF. And don't refer to me as a flurge. I googled what it stands for and I do not like it. Reporters and commentators, stop using words that diminish us like pretty, attractive, beautiful, Harpy, shrew, (laughs) boner shrinker. I couldn't
0: help but feel really depressed about how little progress has been made, just sort of in general, as a nation, since that sketch came out. What do you think of the overall trajectory Sarah Palin has been on? And is there anything that maybe Democrats or just people in general should be aware of or learn from?
1: I think we've done a better job in the years since Sarah Palin at recognizing that gender doesn't have to be the most salient characteristic of a political candidate. And so certainly Sarah Palin has been the target of sexist complaints and criticism. It doesn't mean that calling Sarah Palin dangerous or even ignorant is sexist talking about her wardrobe isn't sexist. I feel like we've talked about this on the waves before where, you know, the way people present themselves is actually really relevant to the, you know, their political persona and the, the place that they hold in their political movement. I also think the way uh, white women in particular have advanced MAGA ideology and culture is important when we think about Sarah Palin's rise and Looking back on the reaction to Sarah Palin when she first came onto the national political scene, it almost seems sexist to underestimate that we all underestimated what she would be capable of. Um, and I think the fact that she was a white woman was part of that because people assume that she doesn't have the political savvy to really uh, claim I pl- I don't think it was all overestimation of the Republican Party and how committed to ideals <laughs> They were. I think it was in part an underestimation of her. We're finally coming around to internalizing the truth that white women are, in a way, acting in their own self-interest when they support Republican candidates, that it's not just all about abortion or something like that or about, you know, um, equal pay, that there are other benefits that white women receive from their alignment with white supremacist candidates and their promotion of, you know, myths about Obama's birth certificate or whatever. Sarah Palin was sort of at the vanguard of that. And the fact that we're taking her seriously now, I think, is actually a good thing because we're recognizing the fact that she's not a contradiction in terms of the fact that she is this very conservative, very popular, like hyper feminine um, Republican superstar.
0: What do you think Sarah Palin's biggest legacy for women in politics is going to be. Oh man. <laughs> she definitely
1: held space for the sort of rugged femininity of like, uh, highlighted poofed hair and also holding a gun that is quite common in conservative circles, but you didn't see a ton of in Republican politics before her. It was a lot of the more skirt suit, like elitist uh, Republican vibe. And Sarah Palin brought in that, like I'm doing extreme scare quotes here, like populist Republican woman vibe. I think that's, we can credit a lot of what we see in, far-right Republican women's aesthetics to Sarah Palin, the fact that she sort of um, gave American archetype to recognize. Is Sarah Palin going away anytime soon? No. If she loses this election, you know, she's still Sarah Palin.
0: Before we head out, we want to give some recommendations. Christina, what are you loving right now?
1: I just finished the book Cleanness by Garth Greenwell. Um, It came out in 2020 and I'm just getting around to it. Thank goodness I did because it has been stuck in my head ever since I finished the book. Each chapter is like its own little vignette, almost could be a standalone short story um, written from the perspective of a gay American teacher who's living and working in Sofia, Bulgaria. I have not read this astute and self-aware a dissection of human interaction in I can't even remember how long. Garth Greenwell is takes like small like bits of nonverbal communication, things that happen every day in our lives when we're negotiating like power dynamics between a teacher and student, or two lovers, or somebody dating, or a friend, and he'll draw them out for paragraphs um, explaining like how the narrator is perceiving the other person and how that person might be perceiving him. And um, it's almost like he hits slow motion on body language and on uh, conversations in a way that has me not only seeing myself in the story, this person has put into words things that like I, I absolutely identify with immediately upon reading them, but could have never, ever um gone to enough therapy to allow me to explain in the in the super clear way that he does. It's so beautiful. It contains one of the I think most beautifully written love stories of um any book in I've read this year. I'm so impressed by this book. I can't stop talking about it. Um honestly happy to be able to talk about it on this podcast because I think everyone should read it. Again it's called Cleanness by Garth Greenwell.
0: I was feeling a little bit silly because my Recommendation is also a book from 2020 that I just (laughs) managed to read. And it's called When No One Is Watching by Alyssa Cole. This is a woman who usually writes actually romance novels. This is, I believe it was her first thriller. And it is. It's so good. I love thrillers. One thing I hate about them is just how like dark and sad they are. This has a protagonist that is feisty and quite funny a lot of the time. I like to think of it as more of like a hangout thriller because it's fun and these are people you just want to hang out with and solve a mystery with. And I don't want to give anything away, but this is the perfect description that I found for it. Rear window meets get out in this gripping thriller from a critically acclaimed New York Times notable author in which the gentrification of a Brooklyn neighborhood takes on a sinister new meaning. It was so good. And I think those two comps are absolutely perfect. Rear window and get out. It's just incredibly well written. It's very fast paced. It's fun. It's a really intriguing mystery. I could not put it down. I was up very late finishing it. So When No One is Watching by Alyssa Cole, I highly recommend people go check that one out as well. Oh, that sounds great. Thank you. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by myself,
1: Shana Roth. Shannon Paulus is our editorial director. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer of audio. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio.
0: We would absolutely love to hear from you. Please email us at at
1: thewaves@slate.com. And The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different
4: topic, same time and place.